brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy, especially when it comes to the care you need. So let's talk about you, about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Let's talk about your needs now and for the future. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. It starts with a phone call. Call 866-420-5330 or visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. Vancouver student Elisa Lam was last heard from on January 31st, 2013, after she checked into downtown L.A.'s Cecil Hotel, a 600-room building with a nine-decade history of scandal and tragedy. The next day, Elisa vanished. A search of the hotel yielded nothing. More than a week later, complaints by guests of foul-smelling tap water led to a grim discovery. Elisa's nude body floating in a rooftop water tank in an area extremely difficult to access without setting off alarms. The only clue was a disturbing surveillance video of Elisa uploaded to YouTube in hopes of public assistance. As the eerie elevator video went viral, so did the questions of its tens of millions of viewers. Was Elisa's death caused by murder, suicide, or paranormal activity? Was it connected to the Cecil Hotel? And in that video, what accounted for Elisa's strange behavior? With the help of web sleuths and investigators from around the world, journalist Jake Anderson set out to uncover the facts behind the death that had become a macabre internet meme, as well as a magnet for conspiracy theorists. In pouring through Elisa's revealing online journals and social media posts, Anderson realized he shared more in common with the young woman than he imagined. His search for justice and truth became a personal journey, a dangerous descent into one of America's quiet epidemics. Along the way, he exposed a botched investigation and previously unreported disclosures 
from inside sources who suggest there may have been a corporate conspiracy and a police cover-up. Anderson chronicles eye-opening discoveries about who Elisa Lamb really was and what or whom she was running from, and pre- presents shocking new evidence that may reopen one of the most chilling and obsessively followed true crime cases of the century. The book that we're featuring this evening is Gone at Midnight, The Mysterious Death of Elisa Lamb, with my special guest, journalist and author and filmmaker, Jake Anderson. Welcome to the program, and thank you very much for agreeing this interview, Jake Anderson. Well, thank you so much, Dan. I, uh, I appreciate you having me on, sir, and I appreciate your interest in the case and, uh, and my book. Thank you very much. It's a, a very, very fascinating case, and it really deals with a lot of things that are very uh, modern. A lot of the cases now, we're dealing with 40, 50-year-old technology, forensic techniques, and this sheds the light on a whole new world in true crime investigation. Let's talk about Elisa Lamb. January 31st, this occurs January 31st, 2013. But tell us about uh, a little bit about Elisa before we talk about this incredible crime that was perpetrated upon her. Um, tell us about her relationship with her parents. Where is she living? We mentioned in the, in the introduction, Vancouver. Tell us a little bit about Elisa and what she's doing in Los Angeles. Right. So Elisa was a, uh, a Canadian, Chinese-Canadian uh, young woman. She was 21 years old, and she had been going to school at the University of British Columbia, and she lived in Vancouver. And uh, the aspect of Elisa, uh, she was you know, a blogger, and a, and a very just interesting, smart young woman, good writer. And uh, the aspect of the case that really kind of first drew me in was uh, Elisa struggled uh, pretty ethically with uh, depression and bipolar disorder. And um, those are uh, illnesses that uh, have run in my family. Um, uh, it, you know, it's, it you know, took the life of my my aunt, and, and threatened the life of several close friends of mine. And I had struggled with variations of it as well. So I was drawn to uh, that psychological aspect of the case and her struggle with it, which she documented very bravely on her blogs. And I was also interested in uh, the sociology of the case. Um, Elisa was, uh, like I said, she was just an interesting young woman, and I don't think she ever imagined herself getting caught up in just such a strange zeitgeist-type true crime case that would be obsessively followed by millions of people. And um, so it, it's, she has a few posts that are kind of eerily prescient about, you know, her life. But I think it, 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 the, what, what really kind of drew me to writing about her was just her open and honest description of her own battles with mental illness, which is, you know, an important... Uh, an important thing uh, in in life in general right now, I would say, and she did it pretty pretty bravely. And it's just it's unfortunate that uh, she didn't get a chance to kind of get a second uh, act in her life. And I I think her battle with mental illness is is pretty significant in this. But as I will state, in, you know, as I state in the book, and we'll state here, you know, I don't believe mental illness and foul play are mutually exclusive in this, in this case. And, um, but that's, you know, to kind of 
similarly answer kind of the first question, that that's, a, that's who Elisa Lam was in a nutshell, a, a very complicated young woman who was battling um, something. And that, that battle is what drew me to the case in the first place. And then, you know, I went down new directions up at that point. You talk about the, all the writing and, and how candid she was, and, and uh, she wanted to share her experiences, uh, her, her depressive state, and uh, talk about the things that were important to her in that state. Um, and that's how you, you write that you got to know her and the very intimate relationship in, in terms of the way she wrote and how much she did share what was disturbing her and concerning her in her life. Let's talk about the tour, the California tour. She's from Vancouver. She's a student. She's 21. What's she doing in Los Angeles? And tell us a little bit about this Cecil Hotel, as you write, a 600-room building with a nine-decade history of scandal and tragedy. Tell us about this vacation, why she's at the Cecil Hotel, and a little bit about the hotel itself. So, yeah, Lisa was, uh, I think, trying to turn a corner in her life where I think she wanted to, she spent a lot of her life online. She kind of used Tumblr and other social media networks as a way to kind of uh, kind of not only communicate with other people about her, her problems, but, um, you know, she just, she liked that community online. I think it probably was easier for her as a person with anxiety and depression to communicate with people online. I think her so-called West Coast tour, uh, what she called it, I think that was an attempt by her to kind of break out of her comfort zone and try and turn a corner and just try and start like a new chapter. Um, And so she planned this kind of trip where she was going to start in San Diego and move up through Los Angeles to Santa Cruz. And uh, it's, uh, you know, obviously it ended in Los Angeles. Uh, The question of why she... Uh, settled on the Cecil Hotel is, is definitely, uh, it's an unanswered one. People have theories as to, you know, everything from just economical pragmatism. It is probably one of the cheaper hotels in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, right. to maybe she learned about uh, the history of the Cecil Hotel and maybe was, was drawn to that. Uh, to even some people who, who go down the paranormal route and say that something was calling to her probably not the angle I would choose to go down when trying to explain this, but um, regardless, yes, once she was there, I feel like she got caught up in in, in a nexus there, and um, you know, to be clear, like, I'm not saying 100% that uh, you know, criminal homicide was committed against her, but I, I, my perspective on that did change as I went into this, and I'll get more into that in a second. As far as the history at the Cecil Hotel, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable, this history. And it was already a notorious place, even before the Elisa Lamb case. And I, I documented it pretty extensively in the book. Um, right. There were, as, there were aspects of it that I was having trouble operating because there's really not – most of the information online is basically regurgitated from all, all of this, from one post. It's just there's very little independent corroboration that has gone on online as far as the exact people who died and what happened to them. And so I went in and did a little bit of background um, trying to corroborate for sure what happened to certain people. Unfortunately, the records on that stuff are very, very limited, and it's, it's, it's very difficult to confirm this stuff beyond just newspaper headlines from that time. But uh, they started the curse, what I call the curse of the Cecil, kind of started in the 30s. 
the hotel around the time the hotel first started, and as the hotel got uh, as the whole downtown Los Angeles area got kind of just marooned in the Great Depression, we start to see a string of just very grisly suicides that would take place there, and it, it would range from people slashing their own throats to poisoning themselves to the most frequent uh, of people jumping out the windows of the hotel. And in fact, uh, this continued for so long and so consistently that locals there would start to call the hotel the Suicide Hotel because so many people were were doing it. Uh, Dozens and dozens and dozens of people. Really grisly stories. Uh, One woman uh, unexpectedly gave birth while she was in the room, in her room, and without waking up her partner, she... Drop the drop the child out of the window, and uh, just wow. very, very grisly, horrible stuff that I'm tempted to not even talk about publicly because it, it, it's disturbing and can be traumatizing for people. But it's just it's part of the history, and um, so, and then of course we get into the murder of you know, Pidgey Good uh, Osgood, Pigeon Lady, the Pigeon Lady uh, Osgood. Sorry, messing up her name here, and she was. Um, strangled, raped, and murdered in her room at the Cecil Hotel, and her murderer was never found. And so, and you know, this is just a small cross sampling of just the horrible things that have gone on. And this is all before even the '80s started. And when the '80s started, we enter a whole new phase of the Cecil Hotel, when two different serial killers took residence there. Uh, the first was right. R- Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, and then, um, and you know, most people know about him. Um, still, very shocking stuff. The second, which I, I, I read a book about, and I almost feel like it's more interesting almost, is uh, Jack Unterberger uh, from uh, the Austrian ghoul, they call him. And um, yeah. this guy is just uh, probably the only serial killer in history that has used literature to trick people into getting, letting him out of prison so that he could continue his murder spree. It's really just a right. fascinating um, story behind Unterberger. But, so that's two different serial killers, and then more horrible stuff just continued up into the turn of the century and then we get to Elisa's case. So it's just this uh, incredible history and uh, I try not to delve too far into um, spooky stuff uh, but you know at a certain point one has to ask whether there's just some kind of just I don't know residual trauma that is just lingering in that place that, that affects people and I went and stayed there by myself a couple times and I, I definitely just didn't feel myself and had some pretty profound experiences there. But um, the short uh, answer, I guess, to your original question was, I, I don't know why Elisa stayed there. She's not very clear. And once she got to L.A., she really stopped blogging. And uh, her social media posts just kind of cut off around them. So it's, it's very hard to... to there's, there's pretty much no answer uh, to right now as to why she decided to stay there. Well, let's get to the crime that captivated everyone's imagination. Uh, of course, it's the video that really did did the trick in, in terms of this case, but also just the description of the crime itself. You write that Elisa was last seen January 31st, 2013. She's been at the hotel a few days. She's scheduled to be in the hotel, I think you say, three or four days. She was talking to her parents every day during her tour of California that you write. Um what happens? She is supposed to be out of the hotel on February 1st, I believe. What happens? And tell us about this video and how this video happened to get onto YouTube. 
Yeah, it's a good question, actually. And it's a question that not a lot of people have considered, and I really tried to find an answer as to how this video got onto the Internet in the first place. But first, uh, yeah, the, so, yeah, she disappeared uh, by all reports, of which there are little, uh, around midnight, January 31st. And um, I do believe she was experiencing um, a mixed episode which in bipolar speak is basically kind of a mix between hypomania and depression. Um, however, and that's because she, uh, she had gone off two of her meds, at least according to uh, the coroner. Um, of course, I'll tell you later why I think it's hard to trust a lot of stuff that the coroner says. But uh, for uh, whatever reason, she, uh, there were reports that she was acting bizarre, and I heard, it's, we've heard, I heard that from beyond just the women who apparently stayed with her for a couple nights, and then asked to be moved, her to be moved out of the room because she was acting bizarre. I, I found a man who had spoken with her who hadn't been interviewed yet, and he said she was acting bizarre too. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. But like I say, um, just because someone has mental illness, that does not mean that her death was necessarily an accident. And in fact, uh, studies routinely show that, you know, particularly women with mental illness are far more susceptible to sexual predators. So what happened that night, of course, is, is, is still kind of a mystery. I did turn up some information that makes me think that uh, this was not just uh, an accident, which has now become kind of a... Um, sort of commonly held beliefs now. Um, but um, let's see, we're, we're talk, we're, you want me to answer what happened? Uh, what she I was, happened that night? Or? Yeah, well, no, no, the thing is, we, where we're at is that she disappears. So the parents, of course, right, fly right, from right, Vancouver right. to Los Angeles for the search. And then what did the police do? What's the response to this 600-room hotel? Right. What do the police do and what do they bring into okay. the system? Okay, thank you. Thanks for getting me back on track there. Okay, so, yeah, they ran um, some searches there. They ran two searches, of the, uh, both including the roof, and one of them involved a canine unit. Now, canine units are pretty reliable. Um, the canine units did not pick up her scent on the roof. Uh, the police then kind of uh, conscripted the public a little bit in, in the help for the, in, in the search. Uh, and then about a week later, they released this, very cryptic surveillance tape, probably one of the most cryptic surveillance videos that's ever been on the internet. And it, you know, went viral. And uh, my confusion with this tape has always been why it was released and, and why the nature in which it was released. I, I don't understand that the surveillance tape doesn't really show uh, who it is. Like it's so pixelated and blurry that it's not good for identification purposes. And since there's no one else in it, it's not good for identifying any suspects either. So I'm not sure why it was released. All it did was stigmatize her and make everyone say that she looked crazy. And furthermore, the police didn't even release it publicly. For some reason, they gave it to this journalist named Dennis Ramiro who released it on his YouTube channel. 
And Ramiro has steadfastly refused to discuss how he came into possession of it. I mean, I was pretty much begging him to talk to me. I mean, he's a journalist. I thought journalists were supposed to be about transparency, right? But he um, sure. just, for whatever reason, did not want to get into that. And uh, I think that tape is very problematic for a number of reasons. I think it really kind of poisoned the people's minds and stigmatized her. And um, so that's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, is to try and give a portrait of her that counteracts that, that narrative. Um, about a week later, um, I'm kind of compressing times here, but eventually they did finally find her body. Um, and the and maintenance how? worker, they, they yes. found her. Okay, so they, uh, they, they were, there were people uh, reporting uh, dark water, basically. Uh, uh, sorry, people who were staying at the hotel, uh, tenants there, long-term residents. They were starting to find, you know, dark water in their showers, in their uh, the water they used to drink and brush their teeth with, uh, red sediment, strange black sediment. And so finally, the, ma- the management dispatched uh, the maintenance worker, Santiago Lopez, who went to the roof and finally checked the water cistern. And there he found a uh, body floating face up. And that face up aspect is important. And so that's when they found her floating in the water tank naked uh, with her clothes in the tank with her. Uh, Santiago claims that the lid was open, which I think is right. very significant. Uh, obviously, yeah. if the lid was open, if the lid is open, it's uh, much more easy to imagine that she climbed in herself. If it's closed, definitely points a little bit more t- towards foul play. Um, Santiago uh, testified in a civil deposition regarding that, and. What I believe is that he may have perjured himself, and the reason I think that is because I I hired someone to help me try and find this guy because he had kind of gone off the radar. And I didn't find him, but we did find uh, his half-brother who uh, basically said that Santiago had been paid money to leave the country with his family and that it had happened pretty really? abruptly. Yeah, mm. and, he's, and he said that uh, he didn't even know Santiago had left. All of a sudden, he just found out. And um, so obviously, this is limited information, and it, this needs to be corroborated. But you know, part of this is because all three sources of information about the case, the family, the hotel, and the police have all been talking about it, it's, it's harder to get information out of this. Um, but I do think that we, we have to figure out whether that lid was closed or open, and another point on that real quick is that I did manage to speak to one of the first responders uh, who is now chief of police in Wisconsin. This is definitely a worthwhile or, or a reliable source. He was one of the first people sure. on the scene. He, he says the lid was closed. Now, is it possible that Santiago found the body op- uh, with the lid open and then closed it while he waited for the police to come? That's possible. But if you're me, and if I if, if I'm working and I discover a dead body in a water tank, I'm just I'm not touching anything. I'm, I'm leaving right. it how everything is, and I'm immediately going and telling uh, the management. Uh, the pipeline of who we reported to first is also an interesting thing. Uh, I and we'll get into this in a minute. Uh, but I, I do have reason to think that the hotel itself uh, definitely had an, uh, an incentive to delaying the discovery of this body. Because if this body is in the water tank, 
and the lid is open, especially. I'm, I, I don't know how a canine unit is not going to pick up on that scent. Sure. Um, so there's just all kinds of anomalies there, but regardless, it's, it was, it's a grisly, horrific tragedy, and um, there's just a lot, a lot of anomalies associated there, uh, not the least of which is the fact that her body was floating face up. Most coroners agree that in, in generally still water, it's far, far more likely that a body, a person that, that has died from drowning, they're going to be face down. And mm. that's, that's, one, that's just one little detail of the uh, autopsy that, that we can get into. Let's talk about that autopsy because police make a determination from what the coroner determines. You say they did some tests, but then they did further tests. But what does the coroner find in terms of cause of death and terms of uh, toxology reports, in terms of what drugs may or may not, you mentioned uh, antidepressant drugs, but what drugs did they test for to be in her system? Right. So it's, a li- it, it's pretty limited, and I ended up getting to speak to the corny, uh, corny, the uh, deputy coroner, uh, and he basically said flat out, they only, te- they only test for a few drugs, and anything past that the family has to pay for. What they did test for is the antidepressants and the meds she takes for her psychiatric illness. Um, she was missing her bipolar meds. She was missing her mood stabilizer. She did have one of her antidepressants in there. Uh, so the, the, the conditions were right for her to be having um, maybe a mixed episode. But as far as the autopsy itself, they did not find any evidence of foul play in terms of, like, bruises or lacerations on her that would be immediately indicative of foul play. Um, they did find some some strange, like, injury to her anus that they tried to explain as, uh, like, the decomposition process uh, forcing mm-hmm. forcing things to happen in a way that's grisly. Independent coroner I talked to said that that definitely should have been looked further into, and that in fact um, he does not even think that you know there's really no reason why they concluded that it was a drowning. According to an independent coroner I talked to, and uh, you know this is all kind of not going to pretend that this isn't controversial. Like we don't we don't know for sure. Right. You know, people have, people have differences of opinion, basically, is what I'm saying. But the independent coroner I talked to said that it does not look like she drowned, basically. It, there was very little evidence, uh, very little water in her lungs at all, and no water in her stomach. And they didn't do other tests that they, they should have done to find out if she had drowned. And obviously, the question of whether she drowned is very important because she, if she didn't drown, she must have died before she was put in the water tank. But right. the, I mean, the autopsy is just problematic for uh, a, a few different reasons. But what they did basically say is they believe by they believe bipolar disorder was a contributing factor to her death. Um, the LAPD psychologist I spoke to said that the detectives didn't once consult him or his team about bipolar at all. So it kind of seems like to me that using surveillance tape and the medical reality that she had that illness, I feel like they just kind of use that as just an easy way to explain the death because they were overwhelmed that week because of the Chris Dorner manhunt. And I just think in general they just you know, didn't have the resources at the time to look more into it. And um, they just did not gather the kind of evidence that needed to be gathered to prove anything. They also didn't process the rape kit. Apparently, they 
gathered the uh, necessary forensic evidence for a rape kit, but they did not process it. So we therefore cannot explain this injury to her to her anal region. So yeah, the autopsy is just yet another reason why uh, there's just some problems uh, with this with this case in, in, in terms of what the officials are saying. Now, we'll, we'll have to say for the audience that, that police really don't have any, well, they don't have any eyewitnesses. They have these people that you've never able to contact. There was never an official interview, but there was two women, as you mentioned, that came forward and said, we shared a room with her. She was acting strangely. We requested another room from her. So that was people that had seen her. Now, the, the really the most contentious thing is, and we put this in the introduction as well, is that how could somebody get up on the roof if there's an alarm? But you said there's four ways to get up on that roof, and, of course, you investigate that. And this is important, too, because when we talked about Santiago Lopez and the strange behavior coincidences He's the person that could open that lid. He's the person that would have access to that roof. Tell us a little bit more about the issue itself of access to that roof and your investigation on how likely it was for the police theory that she committed suicide and got into that water cistern. Tell us about that. Right. So, yeah, the accessing the roof... um well, there basically there's an alarm that should have gone off since she had used the main uh, entrance door. Um, there's also a fire escape she could have used. Uh, some recent uh, evidence that came out suggests that her DNA evidence trails off at the fire escape, which would further lend credence to the idea that she took the main entrance. Uh, how she got up there is, is still a mystery, and the police have never answered that. Uh, there's, there seems to be no DNA evidence, uh, forensic, from the canine units and the other uh, investigation uh, showing they, they have an answer, basically, how she got up there. Now, I think that, I personally think that an employee probably let her up there. I've spoken with other uh, tenants there who say that people regularly drank beer up on the roof. That it, was not, it was not difficult to get up there, contrary to popular right. belief and that um, uh, the deputy coroner I spoke to said that when he actually, at one point he just kind of point blank asked the detective, one of them, uh, you know, what do you think happened? And basically the detective said that they think, you know, either a security guard or someone there gave her access to the roof, which would explain why the uh, alarm didn't go off it, it would explain why there was no uh, DNA evidence of her touching the door. And it would also uh, explain, you know, I mean, yeah, it would just explain how she got out there. Uh, but we don't have any hard evidence of that. And because they've been able to, it seems to kind of lock down every possible witness that you would talk to. Um, it's very difficult to say exactly what happened. But if I were to stake a guess right now, I would say that someone let her up there uh, perhaps a security guard who uh, maybe said she, he wanted to show her the roof or something like that. Uh, I, I have found a number of eyewitnesses who directly testified to predatory employees that have worked at the Cecil Hotel for decades. Uh, in one case, uh, this young woman who did not want to go on the record because she feared being evicted, 
basically said that uh, an employee there would use the master key to break into her room and assault her. And um, this is not the first story I've heard like that. Uh, And more recent comments by people saying, you know, yeah, that security guard was, you know, really creeping on my girlfriend and stuff like that. Um, So it it would explain why uh, she was able to get up there. Um, Maybe she then ended up hiding uh, you know, it's you know, it's still a big mystery what happened up there, and I, I hope we're able to uh, get to the heart of that at some point. It's going to take. I mean, basically, what I hope to do is just kind of kick the door open a, a little bit more, and hopefully, you know, we're going to be able to get to the bottom of this because, uh, you know, if this if this young woman was was just uh, preyed upon at this hotel, uh, it's pretty doubly tragic that then they're blaming her mental illness on her own death. Uh, so uh, I, I would say at this point, my belief is that someone let her up on that roof. Uh, I, I don't see any other way she would get up there. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Absolutely. Yes, let's use this as an opportunity, uh, Jake, to stop for a second to talk about third love. Third love uses the measurements of millions of women to design bras with all-day comfort and support. Their perfect fit promise, 60 days to wash it and wear it. If you don't love it, returns are always free. Bras in over 80 sizes, including half cups, all made with signature memory foam. My wife, Lisa, took Third Love's Fit Finder quiz. She answered a few simple questions to find her Third Love bra size based on breast size and fit issues. It took just a few minutes, and she ordered her 24-7 classic T-shirt bra. The bra was very flattering and very, very comfortable, she said. It fit perfect. Hands down, the most comfortable bra you'll ever own. Straps that won't slip and tagless labels. No itching. Lightweight, super thin memory foam cups mold to your shape. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they are offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash truemurder to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash true murder for 15% off today. That's thirdlove.com slash true murder for 15% off today. Now you have, you mentioned in the book, the, the web sluice. Tricia Griffith reorganizes, purchases the website. 
and you talk about the amateur sleuths in the world that were fascinated with this case, and you talk about the numbers, a million views in a month. You Tell us a little bit about the response of this case, the kind of numbers that, that the, some of these sites experienced. Tell us a little bit more about this phenomena. Sure, yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely one of the aspects of it, like I said earlier, that drew me uh, to be interested in the case because, uh, you know, it's kind of an overused metaphor, but um, it, it kind of became like a Rorschach test. Like everyone who would look at this case would find some special meaning in it that matched up with their worldview. And so you would have um, people that believed there was some spiritual paranormal narrative going on. You would have people that were gung-ho on the homicide narrative. Um, and then you would have people that say, you know, this was just an accident and a tragedy involving mental illness. And uh, and it goes even beyond that. There's some of the most bizarre conspiracy theories I've ever heard uh, came from this case. And so I definitely think that this case kind of tapped into a little bit of a widespread social social pathology that we're seeing come out uh, with, with the advent of, of, of the Internet. And um, But yes, the web sleuth aspect of it is, is very interesting um, because there's really responsible web sleuths. Um, a lot of the people, like you said, Tricia Griffith works with, and I was lucky enough to get to interview her for this, and she's been very kind and supportive. Uh, John Lorden from Brain Scratch, I think, does a really responsible job analyzing cases and destigmatizing certain aspects. Uh, but then you, uh, I would talk with uh, people. I mean, I don't even really want to call sometimes people web sleuths because I really just, some of the conspiracy theories I was hearing were just so unhinged that I almost feel like it kind of defeats the purpose of, of a kind of more decentralized criminal justice pursuit, uh, which is what we're trying to establish as a whole. We're trying to, you know, earn enough respect from the police that they're at least willing to kind of hand out age-old cold cases and just kind of let web sleuths see what they can do with it. There's web sleuths that have straight-up solved cases. And um, the more responsible ones, I would say, deserve that chance, especially when you have police departments that simply don't have the money or resources to look at all these cases. Um, so that aspect of it, I think, is very important. And I you know, spend a considerable, considerable amount of time in the book discussing kind of the uh, ramifications of this because I would, you know, just speak to so many people who you know, just believe things about the case that are just um, uh, really just not worthy of putting a lot of attention into. And it ended up just kind of stigmatizing the case so much that you couldn't even really discuss any theory on it because people would just say out of hand, oh, you're just um, exploiting this young woman or, or something like that. And uh, that was an aspect of the case I was very uh, sensitive about from the beginning is wanting to, uh, you know, do her justice and paint a portrait of her that is uh, more realistic and humanizing instead of just uh, like a horror meme, you know. But the the legacy of this case will live on for a while, I think, in terms of just the kind of psychology it captured, snapshot uh, of this century where people are really just swan diving into these Internet conspiracy communities and not doing a lot of uh, their own independent research and corroboration. Uh, and then that's counterbalanced by people that are just really devoting their lives to the opposite of that, which is just really fact-checking things and 
trying to do real investigative journalism through the internet. And so we kind of see that battle playing out um, in the book, but also just in real life right now. What are some of the other avenues that you explored? You tried to talk to hotel personnel. As we talked about, there was a, a pattern of having sex offenders in a 600-room building. You said there were sex offenders outside the hotel within blocks and sex offenders that were in the hotel itself. In this aspect of the unknown, because of the rape kit not being processed, you mentioned that one of the drugs that was not tested for that you thought might be uh, a good idea to be tested for was what? Tell us what that drug was and why you thought it should be have to been tested for. Well, I, I definitely think they should have tested for date rape drugs like roofies. Um, that, I mean, I think that should go without saying. When a young woman is found naked and dead in a dark tank on a roof, uh, I, I can't understand why you wouldn't not only process a rape kit, but treat it as a suspicious death and run a, and test for uh, the kind of meds that are used to incapacitate women. Uh, I personally would have liked to see a test for drugs like Ambien and, uh, you know, a drug that can make you sleepwalk to see if maybe she was just kind of in a, a lucid state when she, when she entered the tank. Um, but, you know, at the very least, I think they should have tested for, for date rape drugs. And uh, they don't really... And another thing is, like, because she was in the water so long, and this is why it's so critical that if someone did let her on the roof, it's doubly suspicious that no one spoke up about that because if they had gotten to the body, body earlier, they found it in the tank earlier, uh, it would have been easier for them to test for certain drugs. Some drugs don't stay in the system very long. And right. when you're in the water, that, that stuff can just kind of disappear. And so it's, it, unfortunately, uh, it was just very limited. The uh, coroner said that uh, blood quantitation is very limited. They were just limited in what they could do, um, at least according to the reports. Now, as I say in the book, uh, one of the uh, main coroners it was at the time being sued for falsifying an autopsy in another case. Uh, so I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure how much of the autopsy we can trust, really. But, yeah, I would have liked to see a more, given that it took them about six months to release the, autop the full toxicology and autopsy, which is pretty unprecedented uh, cases. They usually release that stuff much quicker. You would think that they would have done a little bit more due diligence on, on, on testing some of these things. And I think that, uh, well, you know, there's, there's I, I go a little bit more in depth on why I think that autopsy is so flawed in, it, uh, in the book. Uh, it gets a little wonky in parts, so I'm not sure it would, it would be great for radio right now. But yeah, I, I basically think that uh, this case should be reopened by uh, you know, the California Attorney General. And remember, I went into this case thinking I was about 60-40 that it had been an accident. And I was going in it to write about the psychology, the mental illness, and the sociology. I was not expecting to end up finding uh, evidence that made me think that this really had been a cover-up. I wasn't expecting to talk to a bouncer on the same street who told me he had spoken with an off-duty cop that said they found some of her belongings in a dumpster. Uh, I wasn't expecting to find a, a whistleblower, uh, an LAPD insider, 
who had retired and who had spoken firsthand with private investigators who said, yeah, this case was completely screwed from the beginning, uh, and that the LAPD and the Cecil Hotel corporate executives were, you know, re- meeting together in very strange circumstances. Uh, I wasn't expecting to find out that the Cecil Hotel finalized a $100 million real estate deal with the biggest real estate firm in the world, CBRE, only days after they finally discovered the body, giving them a pretty clear incentive for delaying the discovery of the body. Uh, There's just all kinds of very strange anomalies associated with this. And I'm very clear when it's circumstantial and when things need to be corroborated. And I'm not saying that I've cracked the case. I'm just saying from a very rational standpoint, even if you want to adhere very strongly to Occam's razor, I personally prefer Hickam's dictum, which is the theory that truth usually has a number of different sources and symptoms that are all converging into one. So there's not necessarily one cause to to something, to a truth, that there's converging uh, truths. And I, I think here that uh, this is not an open and shut case. I, I really strongly believe there is something very, very, even if even if her death was an accident, I, I still feel like they concealed it and they, uh, I don't know who else would have been paying the guy who found the body and maybe perjured himself to move his family out of the country um, besides that hotel. Yeah. There's just, there, there's major smoke here and it, it really, you know, without the family being involved, it's next to impossible that it's going to happen. But, um, you know, maybe we can get some people talking about this case again in its full context. It's interesting, too, when you talk about this business deal that obviously does not want to have a murder involved at a hotel and the, and the ensuing publicity, given that this hotel already has a notorious reputation. And it's interesting, too, a normal open investigation where you would have things not concluded and, and people would be thwarted from investigating by saying, look, at this is an open investigation. We can't tell you anything. This is much, much better in terms of suppression and saying this is a suicide case is closed coroner's concluded we have no other evidence you also talk about a civil case launched by elisa's parents and at first you thought you hoped that this would reveal it would be forced to reveal valuable information that you weren't getting from anywhere else what happened with the civil case Right, yeah. This uh, this was a lot of us really believed that this was probably the best chance we were going to have to see new uh, police notes, uh, new files from the investigation presented in a civil deposition against the Cecil Hotel for wrongful death. And I was actually like, I you know took a train to L.A. to attend it, and uh, yeah, you know we were all very disappointed when the judge kind of just. He just threw out the case. Like, it's not like we got 12 jurors and they concluded that the hotel was not at fault. Even if that had happened, we would have gotten to see a trial. We would have gotten to see new evidence and new questions would have been answered. The judge just threw the case out from the beginning. And uh, no one really knows why. Um, I, 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 I mean, whether, whether the case would have succeeded or not, I, I can't imagine that there was, wasn't enough there to at least hear the case. Uh, so I'm, frankly, a little, little suspicious of, of that and um, a little suspicious of the judge for reasons I don't want to go into because I don't want to get into a rumor mill situation. But 
I, I do think that civil case that civil case was heartbreaking, and the unfortunately the family you know did not get any um, compensation there. And uh, one interesting moment in the civil trial was when uh, the lawyer said this you know this was not a case of haunting, this was not a case of murder, uh, this was just an accident. And a lot of people took that to mean, oh well, that's the family saying that this was, uh, this, this was an accident. But uh, I think it's very clear when you have a case where they're trying to prove wrongful death in the hotel, they pretty much have to say it was an accident. It, it, they can't say it was a murder because in the, in the hotel is not at right. fault. Mm-hmm. So sure. it was very clear that they were going to be arguing that this was an accident from the beginning. Um, I do not blame the family at all in not pursuing this further They've been traumatized. I, I can't even imagine the trauma they've gone through with not only, obviously, the horrific death, but then also just this thing being publicly litigated for years online. It's just uh, the worst nightmare I can imagine. So I don't blame them at all for not wanting to be involved in this at all anymore. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the, the LAPD has to just literally shut off every flow of information and just refuse to answer uh, questions. I mean, I, w- I, I had detectives blocking me on Twitter for just asking a basic question. Uh, I had another detective block my email. And I'm not a contentious, I'm not a combative dude. I'm not a disrespectful guy. I don't troll people. Like, I just ask a respectful question and just try and get a little bit of info, even on peripheral parts of the case. They will not talk about anything. Period. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting too. It, it it seemed to have some hope too because the lead detective in this was uh, Wally Tunnell. His son had been yeah. murdered. He decided to live in South L.A. Figured, well, I'm not going to move out of this area. And this kid was shot in the head. Um, right. So you think he would at least be a guy that would be open to the possibility that it was a murder and be more vigilant than say a, an officer that didn't have this happen. And yet the official yeah. position from the police is that this is, was a drowning. Um, you know what's well, very couple, interesting, couple, too, is that... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to make a, a couple points there. One, uh, yeah, Wally, Wally Tanil has an interesting backstory. He was part of uh, the crash division in LAPD, which was one of, one of the most notoriously corrupt and barbaric uh, police units in LAPD history that got tied up in the Rampart scandal. Um, right. He, I, I, I was interested in his backstory, and I really wanted to interview him about that. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think a point to consider is that they may have found some evidence, but they ha- you have to bring a case to a prosecutor for foul play, you have to have a preponderance of evidence. And if you don't have it, you don't bring the case. There's many, many times when a case isn't even brought to a prosecutor to even consider charges because they just sure. they might have 50% evidence or even more, but they just don't have enough to charge anything. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it could be simply a case where they didn't have the evidence, they were very distracted by the Chris Dorner manhunt, and this is also a final point I'll make about the LAPD, and you can take what you want from it, but it was revealed that at that time they were systematically under-reporting violent crimes. Uh, For a, a clean year, they were fudging the numbers to make less murders, less violent crimes in the city. Wow. So maybe they just did not want to work on a murder case because they didn't want that to be in their numbers. 
You talk about a, a police officer that was, uh, oh, well, we, again, we talked about Chris Dorner. You talk about the police being preoccupied with that. He was threatening to kill 40 police officers, so you could see that natural distraction and priority for the cops that week, for sure, certainly. What was interesting is that when this video was first released, and you did get another video that you write about that had slightly different version of the elevator video, for our audience and for people that may watch this, uh, the video, in that that was not the entire video, it seemed. There was people talked about it being edited for some reason. And also you say right. there was never any other footage. Certainly there must have been some other surveillance footage from some other camera, and yet nothing else was released, was there? No. No, the only thing they released is the one that makes her look mentally ill. That's the only one they released. Yeah, yeah the, the, time, the time code issue is a big one, and it's definitely been the birth of a lot of conspiracy theories. Uh, I'll, I'll just make two points. I'll make a point, and I'll make a counterpoint. So, the time code definitely cuts. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Um, there's a point in the video, I believe it's 243, or, or 343, but uh, I, I may be wrong on that, but there's a point at which she leaves the screen, and so the time code is pretty muddled. You can't see exactly what it says, but you can clearly tell where the microseconds are, the seconds are, and the minute hand is. You can tell that based on just how things are moving. And there's a point in the video where the minute hand changes. She, she leaves the, the screen, and nothing is moving, and then seven seconds later, the minute hand changes again. So there was definitely a time code cut. Now, the counterpoint now is that is that the point where someone entered the screen and they wanted to slice that out of there? Possibly. The counterpoint is that there are surveillance systems that are based on motion generation. So it may simply be that it cut because there was no movement in the screen. That's mm -hmm. yet one of the many questions that would be lovely to have answered and would be very easy for them to, to do. It would be very easy for them to dispel that conspiracy uh, they could issue literally a two-sentence statement on that, and they could have done it four years ago, and that would have been the end of it. But because they haven't spoken about it, uh, yeah, it's it's the perfect place to cut because there's no movement. And I used to do video editing, and that's the perfect place because if you cut between two different frames in which nothing's moving, moving it doesn't look like anything changes. And it's right when she left the, the elevator. So if someone was coming by at that moment, it would have been the perfect time to do it. Uh, now, does that mean that's what happened? No, not necessarily, but uh, it's it's definitely one of those aspects of the case that is very eerie. And uh, boy, I mean, if I had the resources for it, I would I would have brought it to a professional digital analyst and really drilled down into that. And I, I still hope to do that someday. Wow, incredible! What again? What's uh, what is the your idea? Or your this, how you dispel the notion that this woman in this state it clearly shows from the video that she was in some kind of manic state of some sort, whatever you, whatever you term it, that she got through. Again, maybe the alarm wasn't on on the roof. Maybe somebody gave her access, but physically able to do go through the fire escape, get up to the cistern, lift up this lid. Is there any way that you determined that this was even really feasible for her to do this under any yeah. circumstances? Right. At first, that was one of the questions that I think really spooked people is, was this even physically possible? 
Um, so, first of all, she is definitely acting a little peculiar in the elevator tape. However, I will admit that if you took a random sample of me when I don't think I'm being watched and I'm some preoccupied something and maybe nervous about something, uh, I wouldn't necessarily look... I mean, I, I, I might be doing some strange things, too. I don't necessarily mm. think her behavior is that strange. She is certainly exhibiting symptoms of psychomotor agitation, which is a simple symptom of bipolar disorder. I interviewed two different body language analysts for the book, and they both conclude that her, be, her cognitive dissonance is changing, that she's, her mood is changing, and that she's thinking about something, someone. Whether that someone was someone who was currently in the hotel or just someone she had a crush on was thinking about, uh, the body language analyst is, is interesting. As far as whether she could have gotten to the roof, uh, she could have climbed the uh, fire escape. Um, I think that's less likely simply because she didn't have her glasses on, and that just seems very, I mean, I just can't imagine her climbing that. More importantly, the roof, let's, let's assume that she went up there alone. The roof is dark, very dark, and it's unlikely someone told her there was a water tank up there. Why would, why would someone tell her that unless they planned, unless they wanted her to, unless they wanted her to go there and planned to meet her there. Uh, they're not going to say, Hey, yeah, check out the water tank on the roof later. It's interesting. No, if she went up there, she had no idea what she was looking for. I find it strange that she would just stumbled upon these weird tanks, decided to climb it. It's an arduous task getting up there. And then she decided to what, go skinny dipping and take her clothes into the tank with her and then close the tank over her head. Uh, look, I mean, these are just, I'm really trying to be, uh, give credence to both sides. And all, I state very clearly in the book, this could have been an accident. And people who are in manic states do do very strange things that seem impossible. That, and it's, it's one of the aspects of the illness that, that many people have talked about. And it's worth considering. But each new detail I would find would just complicate it a little bit more making me think, my God, I just, I just don't understand, I, I don't, uh, you know, sometimes people in manic states will have kind of like hypersexual episodes, so maybe that would explain her taking her clothes off. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know why she would have taken them in the tank with her. Um, sure. Uh, but yeah, it, it's, 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 uh, the mystery remains on that. Um, and I'll just say again that I think that there are two different truths that are possible here. I do think she was experiencing um, a mixed episode of some kind. I also think it put her in a position where she would have been a very vulnerable and opportune target for a sexual predator in the hotel. So I think it's possible that both of those things can be true at the same time. Just before I let you go as well, I know you you have to go. The one fascinating aspect of this to add to this incredible mystery is that there was reports, you were sent a video of Latin or very strange, bizarre graffiti up on that roof, which is... Yeah, someone, someone fact-checked that. I, I just reported what someone else had reported, which is there was a phrase in Latin on the roof, on the tank, that said, uh, it turns out she was a C-word. And um, it turns out that on that same day, Elisa reblogged a quote about that word, about why men use that yeah. word. So it's, it's kind of a little yeah. mysterious, you know, the synchronicities, and that's a whole other kind of part of the book, or it's the synchronicities mm -hmm. that go in this case. For example, the fact that she 
reblogged a photo of a body falling from a building the day she died. It was actually one of her last posts. And meanwhile, you have this hotel where there's so many people that have jumped out the buildings. Um, and I talked to a, a woman who stayed there who said that the, she, it turned out she stayed there the same week Elisa did and didn't know about that until after. And she said that she had an experience where as soon as she entered her room, she felt this compulsion to go to the window and she just started thinking about what it would be like to jump out of it. So there's these, just these strange things that seem to go on in, inside this building. But as far as, uh, back, back to the main point here, I keep going off topic, but uh, as far as this quote on the roof, yeah, I mean, I definitely think it, it's synchronistic at least that she's talking about this kind of weird post on the roof. Does it mean that she was up there and saw it? and then decided to re-log something about the word, it's possible. Yeah. It really is very interesting, the Santiago Lopez and the open lid, and he is the person that goes because the the manager tells him to go up there, and then the canine unit and the police had been on that roof twice and didn't see a lid right. open on a cistern. So right. you got to wonder, and then if he's moved, him and his family has moved, yeah, it's 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 uh, a very very interesting it, thing to consider. They didn't they didn't get a scent, uh, and may, perhaps it's because the body wasn't yet in the tank that it was put there yeah. later. They were concealing it, trying to keep the news of another dead body in the hotel from coming out until after they had signed this real estate deal. Um, this is just a theory. It's, it's based on publicly available reports. But uh, I'm telling you, there, there's not one interview about this case with any of the major employees besides what they have testified to in the civil deposition. None of the detectives have talked about it. None of the women who were in the hotel have been interviewed about it. There's something very, very strange about the coverage of this case. And I cannot conclude, based on what I found, I cannot conclude anything else but that something is being covered up. I want to thank you very much, Jake Anderson, for talking about Gone at Midnight, the mysterious death of Elisa Lamb. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Is there a Facebook page or a website that they might go to for further information? Uh, you can just, and it's just you know, Google Gone at Midnight. Um, you can check me out on Twitter if you want, Over the Moon SF. Um, I have a website that I'm kind of revamping into a true crime site. It's called The Ghost Diaries. It started as kind of like a uh, uh, looking into strange, weird theories. I'm turning it more into true crime. But, yeah, for now, I mean, if people are interested in the book, um, you can just Google Gone at Midnight. And, uh, Dan, I really appreciate you having me on. It means a lot to me. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Good night. Good night, sir.